Well, I want to begin our study today by touching on the next text that we come to in John's first letter. We're just going to touch on it like a touch and go and then jump or bounce to a, another text that we're going to have actually where, where we'll spend most of our time this morning. So we come next in our study of 1 John to verses 18 and 19 of that chapter. So you can turn there with me and we'll just begin there for a moment. And we're going to see that this is a very sobering passage that alerts us to the very real presence and threat of false teachers around us today. So let's look at this next passage here in 1 John together. And I'll make a few comments and then we're going to turn our attention to another text which will help us better understand what it is that John is talking about. So let's read together 1 John chapter 2, verses 18 and 19. I'll read it, make a few comments, and then we'll go to another text for the rest of our time. John says here, Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. If they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are not, they all are not of us. And in these verses, we see the lines clearly drawn between two distinct groups of people. There are the children, who John is writing to, These are the ones whom the whole letter really is addressed to. These are the ones that he joins to himself then in verse 19, where he writes five times about the us. So you see the pronoun us five times in verse 19. He's referring to the children plus himself. That's the us. And then we can see them there in verse 19. They went out from us. They were not of us. If they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. But this group called the us is then pitted against the they. The they of verse 19. Six times we see a reference to the they. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out that it might be complained that they all are not of us. And then in verse 18, we get clarity as to who that they is. They are, as John says, the Antichrists. So there are the people of God in the church. And then there are the Antichrists, the us and the they. And those two groups are pitted against each other in these two verses. And we're going to spend our time next week discussing exactly what it is that John has to say about all this. But for our time today, I want to focus on this group called the Antichrists. Notice in verse 18 that we read that there is, first of all, one Antichrist who's coming in this last hour. John makes that clear at the beginning of verse 18. And next week I'll talk more about the nature of who it is that John is precisely referring to when he talks about the one 
Antichrist who is coming. But then he clearly is more focused on the many Antichrists who are already here that he introduces in verse 18. And then we know this because the many Antichrists are the they's of verse 19. That's who he's focused on in verse 19. The ones who are pitted against the members of the church. So we need to ask ourselves the natural question, who are these many antichrists? Well, by understanding their name, we learn that they are against Christ. That's what it means to be anti-Christ. They're opposed to him. And from some cross-references in John's letter, we, weren't, we learned that they also are those who lie about the truth. They seek to deceive God's people. Here is verse 22 of chapter 2 in John's letter. John says, Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist. He who denies the Father and the Son. And then in 2 John, verse 7... He says this, For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the Antichrist. So the Antichrists not only are opposed to Christ, that's in their name, Antichrists, but if we look at what John says about them in other places, they are liars, they are deniers of the person of Christ, and they are deceivers. Liars and deceivers. And if we piece all of this information together, we come to the clear conclusion that these many antichrists are none other than the false teachers who seek to spread lies about Christ among the church. They're people who are ingrained into the warp and woof of the church, identify themselves as members, as voices as teachers in the church, but they are indeed false. So John is teaching in these verses about our interaction with false teachers. And to prepare us for understanding what John is teaching about these false teachers, I want to take our time today to learn about what Jesus himself says about false teachers. After all, John would have patterned his understanding of false teachers after Jesus's understanding of the false teachers, since he calls them anti-Christs. So I think we all could stand to hear what the Lord himself says about these kinds of people by way of introduction to what John's saying in this letter. So let's consider what Jesus says about false teachers and what he says about them specifically at the end of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter Seven. So if you would turn there to Matthew 7, if you haven't already, specifically Matthew 7, verses 15 to 20. And that will be our text for this morning. And before we get into it, I want to give us a little bit of a running start into what's going on in the Sermon on the Mount here, because we literally are jumping into the deep end of Jesus' sermon. And so I want to give you a little bit of context so you know what it is that he's been talking about up to this point. In the several verses that precede Matthew 7, 15, the Lord has been speaking quite a bit about having proper spiritual vision or spiritual discernment, being able to see things rightly, 
is what Jesus has been talking about. We see that all the way back, if you turn to Matthew 6 and verse 22, where he uses this illustration, he says, the eye is the lamp of the body. And he's talking about our eyes, our spiritual eyes, giving clarity to everything that we do or think. How we view things around us determines so much about how we live, how we view, how we discern, how we judge the things around us really determines everything about us. That's why he uses the illustration about the the eye giving light to the whole body. Our spiritual eyes give light to everything that we do spiritually. And so Jesus then, after that verse in Matthew 6, began talking about different matters that we're to have proper spiritual vision about. He talks about having proper vision about money. And about the nature of the kingdom. He says in Matthew 6.33 to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. We're to view the kingdom as more important than everything else. At the beginning of chapter 7, he teaches us about how we're to properly see our interactions with other people. We're to view others rightly. In verse 7... He tells us about how, of of chapter 7, he tells us about how we're to properly view the nature of God the Father. In verse 12, Jesus gives the golden rule, but even then he says at the end of verse 12, for this is the law of the prophets, we're supposed to rightly view the scriptures and why they're given to us. And then of great importance is his teaching in verses 13 and 14. Jesus makes it clear the proper entry path into the kingdom. We have to see the entrance to the kingdom properly so that we go on that path. Look at verses 13 and 14. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. So essentially he's saying... Look at the wide way, look at the easy way, look at the popular way, look at it, and when you see it, then you know, don't go that way. But look for the narrow, the hard, the unpopular way, and when you see that with your spiritual eyes, you know the the right way to go. And all of that is context For Jesus talking about false teachers then, beginning in verse 15 of chapter 7. And it's no accident at all that Jesus discusses the nature of false teachers immediately after he talks about the proper way to the kingdom. And this is because our enemy is most active in the world in trying to get people to miss the narrow way into the kingdom. Our enemy, I believe, spends most of his time seeking to get the masses to go to the wide way instead of to the narrow way. Our enemy, Satan, is very much interested in getting religious people contentedly walking on the wide, easy, popular way that leads to destruction. And as we're going to learn today, one of the main ways, if not the main way, that our enemy deceives religious people into taking the way to destruction is by his servants known as the false teachers. 
False teachers are powerful forces of evil. They have been in existence since the first generation of the church and actually well before the first generation of the church. And they will continue on into the end times. We find that the Antichrist is accompanied by whom? The false prophet. A false teacher who will prop up the Antichrist. And we'll talk about that more next week. But Jesus is the greater teacher. He's greater than all the false teachers. He's greater than the the power behind the false teachers. And although we are not inherently wise enough to decipher Satan's schemes, Jesus is wise enough to give us what we need in order to withstand his schemes and his false teachers. So the Lord tells us this most needed warning in Matthew 7, beginning in verse 15. Follow along with me as I read Matthew 7 and verse 15. Jesus says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So, every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. And in these verses, we find three ways in which we are to correctly discern false teachers. Three ways in which Jesus leads us all to rightly assess or judge the threat of false teaching in our own lives. How can you become discerning as concerns false teachers? Jesus gives you three ways. Jesus tells us to discern their danger, first of all. Secondly, Jesus tells us to discern their fruit, And then thirdly, Jesus tells us to discern their end. We have to discern their danger. We have to discern their fruit. And we have to discern their end. And in so doing, we discern the false teachers so that we can act accordingly when we see them. So first of all, we must be able to correctly discern the danger that false teachers present to us. Because if we don't rightly understand the danger, why would we ever care? If right now I said to you, I've used this illustration before, hey, everybody, there's a fire in the building. You guys didn't get up and walk out. Because you you know I'm joking. You don't see it as a real threat to you. Sometimes our enemy tries to get us to think that the false teachers aren't really that bad, and so we're doomed from from the start. We don't really care. We need to understand the real and present danger that they pose to each and every one of us. And Jesus explains how dangerous the false teachers are with one simple metaphor. He says there in verse 15 that they are ravenous wolves who wear sheep's clothing. And there were many in Jesus' day who were intimately acquainted with the occupation of shepherding sheep. Sheep are the kind of animal that provide great benefit to humans but they are high maintenance. They are hard to take care of because they are so stupid. 
They require protection from their hunters. They can't take care of themselves on their own. So sheep would be tended to by shepherds during the day as they grazed in the pastures. People in Israel would own sheep and they would lend them out to the shepherds who would babysit their sheep for them. They would essentially run daycare services for sheep that were owned by people who had other jobs. And so the shepherds would take the sheep out to pasture during the day. And then at night, they would take them into the protection of a fence. And the shepherd would care for them and make sure that no harm came to these sheep. And so the shepherds then earned a living by taking care of the people's sheep. And as a protection against the wolves during the day, the shepherds carried this large staff that, that had one, the crook end that they could bring the wandering sheep back with because they tended to wander away. But the other end of the staff, the rod end, was used either to discipline the sheep, which had to be done sometimes, or to whack off the predators and to make sure that no ill came of the sheep at night. And then the fold, the, the fenced area, provided protection for the sheep at night. Now, sheep and wolves are generally very easily distinguished one from another. Sheep are whitish, and wolves have dark coats. Wolves bark and growl, whereas sheep go bah. Wolves have sharp teeth for tearing flesh, but sheep have sets of teeth that are blunt and good for mashing grass. So they're very different. So the shepherd's job is quite simple in at least determining the sheep from the predator. He sees a wolf far away and knows to begin corralling the sheep. Or if he sees a wolf get into the midst, he can tell. And another reason is because the sheep tend to scatter when the wolf gets there. But what if there was a wolf who was able to dress up like a sheep? A wolf who was able to put in a false set of teeth. A wolf who was able to change its bark into a bleat. And if that wolf in sheep's clothing could blend in with the sheep, then he might be able to make it into the fold at nighttime, where it would be dark and where he could start tearing them to pieces. Just imagine the devastation that a deceptive wolf could do to a flock, not when it's out, but when it's in the fold and it's snuck in their midst. And that's what false teachers do. This is what makes them so very dangerous. They're dangerous to every one of us for three specific reasons. They are dangerous because they are deceptive. They're dangerous because they're deceptive. False teachers do not come to you and say, hello there, I am a false teacher. They don't walk around wearing the my name is stickers and they put ravenous wolf in the name field so that you can see who they are. No, they come to you looking like and sounding like and smelling like a good teacher. They do all they can to present themselves deceptively so that you might actually think they are trustworthy. And they use every trick imaginable to try to make you think they are safe. One of my favorite authors, Martin Lloyd-Jones, says this, The false prophet is a man who comes to us 
and who at first has the appearance of being everything that could be desired. He is nice and pleasing and pleasant. He appears to be thoroughly Christian and seems to say the right things. His teaching in general is quite all right, and he uses many terms that should be used and employed by a true Christian teacher. He talks about God. He talks about Jesus Christ. He talks about the cross. He emphasizes the love of God. He seems to be saying everything that a Christian should say. He is obviously in sheep's clothing, and his way of living seems to correspond. And to make their deception even worse, we have to realize that false teachers generally do not even recognize that they are a false teacher. And that reality speaks to the deceptiveness of the one who controls them. Satan makes his servants think that they actually are good teachers when in reality they're in his grip as false teachers. That says something about the power of his deception. If Satan can so deceive a false teacher to think that the lies that he or she spouts are actually truths, then just imagine the kind of havoc that this devil can unleash upon those over whom the false teachers have influence. So false teachers are dangerous because of how deceptive they are. Secondly, they're also dangerous because of how destructive they are. They're dangerous because of how destructive they are. Think again about Jesus' metaphor. A, a wild wolf is inherently destructive. We're not talking about a little puppy. We're not talking about a domesticated dog. A wild wolf is a dirty scavenger who is full of disease. He will do anything to get fresh meat. A wild wolf has teeth that are sharp and claws that can tear. His bites are precise and they are lethal. And even if you escape from him, he might have given you a disease in the bite that he was able to score in your arm or wherever. And such is the case for false teachers. They bite, they devour, they tear, they infect, they prey on the weak-minded. There is no such thing as a benign false teacher. In the same way that there's no such thing as a benign ravenous wolf. There is no safe wolf, and so there is no safe false teacher. False teachers are dangerous not only because they are deceptive and because they are destructive. Thirdly, they're dangerous because they're durable. They are deceptive, they are destructive, and they are durable. And what I mean by that is the role that they play against the righteousness of God throughout history. No matter what generation of the church you find yourself in, you will find false teachers. And that makes them very dangerous. No matter how much you fight them, you can't get rid of them. It's not just here in Matthew 7 or in 1 John 2 that we are instructed as to the deceptive and destructive danger of false teachers. Go all the way back to the garden. Satan used a serpent as a false teacher, and he deceived Adam and Eve into catastrophic error. Moses warned about false teachers in Deuteronomy 13. So did Jeremiah in Jeremiah 14 and 23. 
Ezekiel referred to such people as wolves, tearing the prey, shedding blood, destroying lives to get dishonest gain. He says, Ezekiel says that these people have smeared whitewash for them, seeing false visions and divining lives for them, saying, thus says the Lord God, when the Lord has not spoken. That's Ezekiel 22. Jesus warns the masses about the false teachers here in the Sermon on the Mount. And he continues in other places that he teaches. In Matthew 24, verses 9 to 11, he says, Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another, and many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. In the book of Acts, in chapter 13, we meet a Jewish man named Bar-Jesus. And the apostles boldly proclaimed this indictment upon him. They said, You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? That's Acts 13 verse 10. In Acts 20, one of the most emotional and sobering accounts in the whole history of the church, we find Paul giving his parting words of exhortation to the elders of the church at Ephesus. And in verse 29, verses 29 and 30 of this chapter, Paul says this to the elders. These are the leaders, seasoned, spiritual mentors at the church in Ephesus. Paul says this to them. He says, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Paul knew quite well that the office of false teacher was pervasive and durable. I believe even that the thorn in his flesh that he refers to in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 that God would not remove for the purpose of his humility, I think it was none other than the false teachers in the Corinthian church that he battled for years. Peter knew of the durability of false teachers. He wrote this in his second letter to the churches, 2 Peter 2.1. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And then, of course, John, who we've been studying over the last several months, was well acquainted with false teachers. He wrote extensively about them, not only in chapter 2, but also in chapter 4 that we'll get to, about how to discern between true and false messengers from God. We must judge the wolves in sheep's clothing as being very, very dangerous. They are dangerous because they are deceptive. They're dangerous because they are destructive. And they're dangerous because they roll, the role that they play as a collective whole in the people of God is so durable. They exist in all generations. But as needful as it is to discern how dangerous false teachers are, we need to be able to evaluate more than just their danger. Evaluating their danger motivates us to look for them, but we still can't identify them. 
We need to be able to discern who they are. Again, if they're dressed up as a sheep, how do we know? So Jesus teaches us, secondly, not only to discern their danger, but secondly, to discern their fruit. We need to discern their fruit. Back in Matthew 7, if you were listening when we read through the text, you could not help but hear Jesus' metaphorical reference to evaluating their fruit. Matthew 7, verse 16, he says, You will recognize them by their fruits. Grapes don't come from thorn bushes. Figs come from thistles. So look at the fruit, and you can identify what type of plant they are. Now, you might not have to wait very long after you hear a false teacher to be able to evaluate their fruit. It might be the amount of time it takes for their voice to speak and it get to your ear that you realize something's not right. Or it might be the amount of time it takes for their fingers to type on the internet and it to get to your eyes and you realize something's not right. Sometimes we know their fruits immediately because they blatantly speak error. We can evaluate, first of all, the fruit of their lips. The message of the teacher will indicate whether they are false or not. And that's exactly what the Apostle John teaches us in chapter 4 of his letter. We read this instruction in 1 John 4, 1-3. He says, Do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. Now that might seem a little confusing, but it's actually really simple. If a teacher says that Jesus has not come in the flesh... If they deny the deity of Jesus, then they're a false teacher. You know immediately that that person who denies a cardinal doctrine of Scripture, if they explicitly deny it, you know they're a false teacher. You run from them. And to take John's instruction there and bring out the necessary implications that are in it, we have to say that we can immediately discern a false teacher if they, con- if they contradict any point of doctrine that is essential to a clear understanding of the gospel and its demands that one be saved by it. So there are other things, not just the deity of Christ, that a false teacher could speak that would immediately alert us to the fact that they're a false teacher. The humanity of Christ, the deity of Christ, the substitutionary atonement of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, the eternal state, the headship of Christ alone over the church, the deity of the Holy Spirit, trinity, total depravity, regeneration, unmerited grace, exclusivity of Christ as the way to God, as the way to God, the need to repent and believe, the lordship of Christ over his people, perseverance of Christians in holiness, a bunch of other things too that we could come up with. All these are examples of clear, clearly revealed in Scripture, vital elements of Christian doctrine that can test whether or not a person is a false teacher. The Apostle John tells the elect lady in 2 John verse 7, that's who he's writing that book to, he says this, Many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not, who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh, 
Such a one is a deceiver and the Antichrist. Watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting, for whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. And the instruction there is clear. You stay away from teachers who do not remain in the teaching of Christ, which we glean from Scripture. So if a message violates Scripture, run. Don't welcome them. But most of the time, false teaching comes in less obvious packaging than that. So it's clear when a, when a Mormon comes to you, they're going to explicitly deny the deity of Christ. So we know very easily, you know, get away. But a lot of times the false teacher comes to us more deceptively than that. Often there is truth mixed in. Often there are smooth words that are used to pad the error. False teaching is most often coming to us in a form that appears initially appealing to the sheep. When you first hear it, as a true sheep, you at first think, oh, that sounds okay. So if we can't immediately smell the error in someone's teaching, how do we go on evaluating whether it's true or not? Well, if the visible fruit of their message is not obviously false, then we move to evaluate the second element of their fruit. Start with evaluating the fruit of their message. The second area of fruit is to evaluate the fruit of their character. Evaluate their character. Back in Matthew chapter 3, we find John the Baptist making a very quick assessment concerning the Pharisees, the false teaching of the Pharisees. They came to him and they initiated a conversation with him. In verse 7, he said to them, John the Baptist said to the Pharisees, You brood of vipers, it's a pretty quick assessment, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? And then John says to them, Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Meaning, I can smell you out as false because you don't obey Christ. You might say things that sound godly, scriptural, because they're teachers of the law, but you don't behave like the people of God should behave. The character of those persons was not befitting of the office that they sought to occupy as the teachers of Israel. They wanted to be teachers, yet they didn't even practice what they preached. And I think it goes without saying that if a person would seek to give spiritual instruction and they do not evidence the basic fruits of conversion, then such, such a person's message is not worth listening to. And that should be obvious. But Satan is so cunning and clever, he gets people to turn blind eyes to character. Their words sound so good. Their teaching sounds so great. Oh, who cares about their character, really? He makes it so that profanity in the pulpit doesn't even seem all that bad. We've seen that even in the last 20 years. He makes it so that infidelity can be ignored and we can just restore people to ministry after they've morally disqualified themselves. 
He makes it so that greed and materialism can be applauded and even celebrated. I've seen some of the prosperity teachers talk about how their jets that they've gotten with money from donors is something to encourage people with because if you have faith like me, then one day you'll have one of these too. doesn't make any sense at all. But then also, he doesn't always have to blind the listeners to the character problems of false teachers. Satan doesn't. Because sometimes their flaws are hidden from view. Perhaps the teacher is able to keep up a facade. Perhaps the teacher is able to mimic Christian living on the outside. Or perhaps because the teacher is relatively unknown and, un, and unvetted, they're teaching from a dark corner of the internet called Facebook or something like that. You don't know anything about them. They're able to hide their character because they just spout stuff online and you're none the wiser who they are. Whatever the case, we again find ourselves in a place where the fruit of a false teacher's message and the fruit of the false teacher's character, they don't always give us a clear picture because the message can sound close and the character can be masked. So how do we know if they're false or not? Well, there's a third element to fruit that I believe helps us. Not only will a false teacher's fruit be seen in their message and in their character, it will also be seen, thirdly, in their audience. We must evaluate the fruit that grows from the lives who listen to it. So don't just evaluate what they say and who they are. Evaluate who listens to them. And this is really the most certain and revealing aspect of fruit inspection that we should employ in discerning false teachers. We should look at the lives of those who are deeply impacted by the person's teaching and we should ask this question. Does this person's teaching yield spiritual maturity in the lives of those who receive it or not? Based on evaluating the lives of those who listen to this teacher, are these people more mature Christians as a result of their teaching or not? That question does not ask how many people receive their teaching. That's not a barometer for maturity, how many this is not a question of how much revenue their ministry receives. And it's also not a question of what their own in-house documentaries would lead you to think about their fruitfulness of their followers. They can make their own publications to make you think that there's a lot of good work being done. This question is whether or not there is evident and deepening and Christ-like fruitfulness springing forth out of the pe people who receive their teaching or not. It might be one person who's listening. It might be 10,000 people who are listening. But all that matters is the fruit resulting from what this spiritual teacher proclaims to his or her audience. After the teacher teaches and that truth or that teaching takes hold and they put it into practice, does it yield true spiritual fruit? If it doesn't, guess what was true of the teaching? It was false. And guess what was true of the teacher? They were false. So this is a way to vet false teachers. We could ask these kinds of questions to those who listen to various teachers. We could say, are their followers bitter and divisive? Are they materialistic and covetous? 
Are they indulgent and secular? Are they shallow and petty? Are they argumentative and vindictive? Are they controlling and insinuating? Are they discontent and unsettled? Are they always the victim and never the problem? All those things that I just listed out, I pulled from looking at a list of the fruits of false teaching that Timothy was instructed by, by Paul to contend against. Just looking in First and Second Timothy. Those are the fruits of those who follow false teachers today. John the Apostle wrote in his first epistle that one of the defining traits of false teaching is that it is approved by the world. If the world looks at some Christian's teaching and says, that's good teaching, there's a problem. That seems simple enough, but how Satan works to make it hard to come to grips with. The world contends strongly against the church, and the influence of the wolves will always bend towards acceptance with the world. That's what the wolves will always want the church to do. So if a teacher influences his or her listeners to move towards positions that are more cozy with the world, the more and more the church is accepted by the world, and friends, we see it all around us today in evangelicalism, the more and more the church accommodates its teaching and doctrines to make the world pleased with it, the more and more we see the influence of false teachers. You have the fulfillment of Matthew 7.20 when you see that. Thus you will know them by their fruits. And all of that, of course, is contrary to the fruits of those who subscribe to the teachers of truth. How do we know if we're listening to a teacher of truth? What kind of fruit should be yielded in our lives? Well, the true shepherd and the true sheep will proclaim the truth of Scripture such that those who listen will evidence a way of life that is like the light of dawn that shines brighter and brighter until full day. That's Proverbs 4.18. The fruit of truth teachers and those who listen to them is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. That's Galatians 5, 22 to 23, the fruit of the Spirit. If someone teaches you something and it finds you to be more like those things that we have on the wall, thanks kids for pointing that out, then you know that you're listening to a true teacher. The good fruit of good teaching is also observed in Colossians 2, verses 6 and 7. Will you turn with me there for just a moment? Colossians 2, verses 6 and 7. Here we see a description of good fruit that comes from good teaching. Paul says in Colossians 2, verses 6 and 7, Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, rooted and built up in Him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. And let me just quickly walk through all the elements of what Paul says there. The obvious fruits of good teaching. Listeners to good teachers receive Christ. They receive his sacrifice and they receive his commandments with joy. Those who listen to good teachers will walk in Christ. Which is to say that they will continually evidence a life of union with Christ. Dependence 
and reliance upon Christ and not self. We also see there that those who listen to good teachers will have scriptural and doctrinal roots that go very deep. They will grow together with the church. They will hold firmly to doctrinal fidelity. They will lean entirely on the authority of scriptures. That's such a big one. Instead of saying, oh, listen to what my experience and wisdom would have you believe. Here's my life advice. Here's how we can do better in this world. Instead of leaning to those avenues of authority, true teachers say, let's lean on the authority of Scripture. And their teaching is saturated with the Word of God. And those who listen to true teachers will abound in thanksgiving. They'll be thankful. They'll be content. They'll be at peace. They won't be contentious. They won't be complainers. They'll be grateful and content. If you see a group of people who listen to a certain teacher and they all live like those things, they're rooted and grounded and growing into maturity like that, then guess what? They're listening to a true teacher and not a false teacher. Because we can discern what we hear not only by if it's explicitly true, and not only if the character of the person backs it up, by all, but also if the lives of those who accept the teaching bears the marks of true spiritual fruitfulness. Then and only then can you be sure that you aren't being swayed by the voice of a wolf in sheep's clothing. Now at this point you might think, that's, that's a lot of work to do to determine whether someone's a false teacher or not. I don't have the time or mental energy to invent, invest that kind of scrutiny into what I hear. Well, to that expression of laziness, we'll just call it, now Jesus offers the most compelling thing of all to help you be motivated to discern what you hear to the fullest extent. In case you feel like being lazy and not vet the teaching that you get, Jesus, now back in Matthew chapter 7, gives you a very compelling thing to do. Jesus not only tells us, first of all, to discern the danger of false teachers and to discern the fruits of false teachers. Thirdly, he tells us to discern the end of false teachers. And this should motivate us significantly. We need to rightly discern the end of the wolves in sheep's clothing. What is coming to them in between Jesus' bookend statements about judging the wolves by their fruits, he says that in verse 16, you will recognize them by their fruits. And he says that in verse 20, you will recognize them by their fruits. In between those things, he furthers this plant fruit analogy in order to make a very important point. Not just to say you can tell them by their fruits. He's using what he says in between to make another point. He begins in verse 17. Every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Now, stop there. If Jesus was only wanting to let us know to look at the fruit and say if it's good or bad, he could have stopped right there. But he doesn't stop his teaching there. Couldn't he have just said that bad plants yield good fruit and that good plants yield bad fruit and then we would have had our point? Well, that's not what he does. Because look at verse 20. 
Or, or, and then move right on to verse 20. But that's not what he does. He builds this example of the different kinds of trees and the different kinds of fruit. And then he tells us what's going to happen to the ones that are diseased. He gives us more information to help us make a por- an important connection. Look at verse 19. He says then, not just that these unhealthy trees, eh, they just go away eventually. He says... What's done with the unhealthy trees in order to make a point? He says, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. In order to make a vivid point in our minds about the bad trees, he tells us that they will be destroyed. Jesus tells us that the false teachers will be destroyed in order that we might avoid them at all costs. If you knew of someone that had a time bomb attached to them and that it was certainly going to detonate, you just didn't know when, then you would be foolish to hang out with that person because you never know when it's going to explode. Or if you saw a lunatic juggling hand grenades, you wouldn't go over and watch the show. If you know someone who's going to be imminently destroyed and that they would be taking with them everyone who's hanging around them, then wouldn't you be compelled to run as far away from that person as you could? And even more than that, if you saw someone innocent standing by looking at it, wouldn't you try to rip them away? Friend, get away from this person. They're about to be blown to smithereens along with everyone around them. So leave, please. Let's get far away. And those are the reasons why Jesus brings the end of the false teachers to our attention. We aren't to flirt with them. We aren't to reason with them. We aren't to want to give them a fair chance to even explain themselves because they're playing with matches near gasoline. We are to recognize that their destruction is imminent and we don't want to be caught up with them at all. Paul knew about this, and he saw the ravaging effects of false teachers, and he treated them accordingly, and he taught Timothy and Titus to treat them accordingly. Paul did not have patience with false teachers like he did with the sinning brothers. He told Titus that false teachers in the church were to be warned two times, give them a first and a second admonition, and if they won't listen, he says, have nothing more to do with them. We don't treat them with patience and gentleness and try to nurture them into holiness. No, you warn them, and then you warn them, and then you kick them out. Nothing to do with them. He didn't soften his message to them, Paul didn't, when he told Hymenaeus and Alexander that by removing them, they would be being handed over to Satan. That's why he said to get rid of these guys. Give them over to Satan, because that's who they belong to. Neither did Paul even recommend that false teachers be engaged with. Don't even even go to ideological battle with them. He told Timothy to simply avoid them and their babble. Don't give them the time of day. The point is, you don't play around with that which is destined for hell. You don't allow that which is hellish to remain in the flock. You don't look at the sheep in the pasture and see that a wolf in sheep's clothing is among them 
and decide to gently interact with this wolf in sheep's clothing. You don't humbly go to them carefully and ask them politely to leave. You don't say to them, would you care to explain yourself? Let's have a little roundtable discussion. Let's see what you have to offer. You don't do that with a wolf among sheep. You go kill the sheep, the wolf. You go get the wolf out from the sheep as quickly as you possibly can. When we discern that a wolf is nearby, we are to react with swift and decisive aggression so that their destructive influence is quickly removed. That's what a good shepherd does. So to review what Jesus has taught us about discerning false teachers, we have to discern, first of all, their danger. We have to see how dangerous they are so that we're motivated to evaluate them and react accordingly. Secondly, we have to discern their fruit. And in discerning their fruit, it helps us to see who they are. And we discern their fruit by looking at their message, by looking at their character, and by looking at those who listen to them. And once we discern that there is a false teacher, either in our midst or on the interwebs, or at the church down the street, or wherever it is, we don't play around with them. Because Jesus tells us to discern their end. Their end is destruction. And we're aiming for purity and protection in our congregation, and so we get rid of the false teachers in our midst. They're very dangerous, and it's not something that we play around with at all. And all of that context about the false teachers or the many antichrists, as John refers to them back in 1 John chapter 2, now that that's in our pockets, we are better equipped to understand what John is going to teach us about them when we get to it next week. So I look forward to having a time talking about them with you in our time next week. Let's pray together. Our Father, we are thankful for your grace because you have alerted us very clearly and very vividly to the reality of false teachers. These are people who, even without realizing it, can cause significant destruction among your people, among your true sheep. And you have given us sufficient tools to be able to discern who they are, to discern how dangerous they are, and to discern what their end is so that we might respond accordingly to them. We pray that as we continue to study what John the Apostle teaches us about them, that we will be benefited by our understanding, not so that we can sit in arrogance knowing that we aren't the false teachers, because we know that the only thing that separates us from them is the work of your Spirit to create an affinity for truth in our hearts as, as opposed to an affinity for selfish ambition and materialism and lies. So, Father, we thank you for what you have done for us to remove us from their influence and to guard us from it. Help us to be wise. Help us to be discerning. Help us to grow into maturity by listening to the teaching of truth that comes from only your word. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.